This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series entitled Unlocking Success, The Crucial Role of Culture in Compliance. This podcast series is sponsored by Diligent. Since at least October of 2021, when Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced the Department of Justice would begin to evaluate corporate cultures as a part of the enforcement process in FCPA enforcement action, compliance professionals have struggled with how can they measure, assess, manage, monitor, and improve their culture. Well, we're going to answer all of those questions in this series. Over this five-part podcast series, we will be addressing the following questions. What is culture? How do you assess culture? What is a culture management strategy? How do you monitor culture? And finally, how does that monitoring of culture lead to continuous improvement of culture? First, a word about diligence. Diligence empowers leaders with a holistic view of their organization's governance, risk, compliance, audit, and ESG practices so they can make better decisions faster, no matter the challenge. Ready for purpose-driven compliance? Diligence equips leaders with the tools they need to build, monitor, and maintain a culture of open, transparent ethics and compliance. For more information or to book a demo, visit diligent.com. In this part two, I visit with Victor Kujak on assessing culture. Everyone, this is Tom Fox back for another episode in our special five-part series. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Victor Kuljak. Victor, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Awesome, thank you for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. Victor, could you tell us your professional background and your current role? Sure. So I'm, I guess, formerly a the equivalent of a CPA, a chartered accountant. Originally, I thought I'd go get my finance degree and be a controller or a CFO. I only to find out I really disliked financial reporting, but I did what was happening around audit and risk. And I ended up staying uh, with the big four for about 10 years, gradually moving out of audit and more into an advisory risk consulting type role. Curiosity got the better of me and I thought, let me see what life is like in the real world. And I ended up joining a Canadian publicly listed entity or company rather, where I was responsible for the uh, Canadian version of SOX as well as uh, heading up the uh, enterprise risk management program there. And over time, I bumped into some colleagues and that's where I am today. I ended up joining uh, a software company where I found it was the best to blend the best of both worlds, kind of bring that strong sort of domain in risk and compliance, but add that cool, hip, really fun thing that a software company can add to the mix. And here I am at uh, Diligent being the Director of Customer Success and Services, where my role is really just to help our customers leverage our gear to the best ability they can in achieving their GRC or their governance risk and compliance objectives. Victor, let me pick up on the word you used a couple of times, and that's risk. Professionally, my sense is that risk is something that your profession looks at. They may look at it a little differently than I do as a lawyer. Nevertheless, it's risk. And in the compliance realm, I think many compliance professionals, they certainly understand uh, a risk assessment, but they may not 
be as comfortable with or aware of how you would take those same concepts and use that in a cultural assessment. So that's really what, where I wanted to start was, is there a way to think about culture as a, just a different risk? Yes, absolutely. And I would say even an auditor, never mind a, a compliance professional, would get nervous when you attach sort of the word culture to risk, just because it's something that's intangible. It's something that's all around you. But if you were to ask someone, wake them up in the middle of the night and say, let's audit culture from either a, a, an audit or even a compliance point of view, um, a lot of people would be mortified and say, heck, where do I even begin? This is such a nebulous, weird concept. So yes, risk is basically anytime anything that can go wrong, um, what can go wrong? That's the question that you're, you're trying to, to ask. And with culture, certainly there's a tremendous amount that can go wrong if you get culture wrong. Are there some uh, principles that you've either learned or actually practiced with in the arena of risk assessment that we could help a compliance officer think through the risk of culture, assessing culture, and maybe moving forward with that? Can How would you counsel or help a compliance officer understand those concepts? Sure. So once you get over the initial shock of being asked to look at uh, culture, uh, if you take a moment and pause and, and look back, you'd see there's actually quite a lot of existing sort of guidance and frameworks that are available. Um, COSO comes to mind, the King Code comes to mind, and oftentimes the logical starting point as with anything to do with compliance uh, or audit or risk is to start to look at the tone at the top of an organization. What is the leadership saying and doing? How do they distill that into the tone at the top, the overall control environment, and going and diving deeper from that point of view. But that would probably be the place that I would start if I was asked to look at culture is, well, what is the top-down view? What is being said? And what are the actions that are being encouraged, discouraged, mandated, et cetera? I have to ask you about your reference to COSO. And I say that because of the following reason. I read the COSO Internal Controls Framework in September of 2014. And when I finished with that, I said, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever read. This is about compliance. Who wrote this? Where did this come from? It's like I had my road to Damascus moment. The scales fell from my eyes and I saw oh. internal controls for all things and became a huge fan of internal controls. But I heard you use the COSO framework, not really in a different way, but drove home to me the power of that framework, which was you talked about utilizing the COSO framework in a culture assessment. And so I wanted to ask you as an auditor, as a, a chartered accountant, how do you see the COSO framework and is it as powerful a tool as I think it is? Yes, I'll, tell, I'll answer that question in two ways. I'll tell you the, the best thing about the COSO framework, which is also coincidentally the worst thing about the COSO framework. And I think it's true of any sort of good framework is what's good about it is it gives you a lot of principles and that's what gets you excited. It tells you a lot of the times what is the what that we should do or the what that we should have. But where I run into frustrations with it is it doesn't always tell you the how, and everybody wants to know the how. 
I know having the what is good, it gives you that sets the boundaries, it, it sets that sandbox that you should be in. So oftentimes you read it and much like yourself, my reaction was, wow, this is great. It gives you a lot of sort of solid guidance, a lot of well-founded principles. But oftentimes it, <laughs> that next step is what you're hoping to find and you don't always find. And I guess that's one of the natural drawbacks is something like that is, is good to have, but it, it can't be the be all and end all for what you're looking to do. And you, the way you described it in other tools you mentioned as a way to think through the risk of culture and you, I think, properly started with tone at the top and then moved to perhaps some rigor around written documentation, whether that be policies and procedures, whether it be a code of conduct, whether it be perhaps a statement of values. Do all of those sort of line up in a way that you could rigorously think through asking the questions to perform a culture assessment? Yes, absolutely. And the reason for that is um, the tone at the top is really a starting point, but it's not enough. And it's you need other artifacts, you need other elements of that that translate and filter down through your organization. And you touched on a couple of examples. Those are your policies, those are your procedures. Um, so those are things like your code of conduct, uh, employment practices and procedures, things that happen uh, along those lines. Um, how you interact with even vendors and what whistleblowing practices you have along with that. The tone at the top is certainly the starting point, but you need other elements and you need that to be available to all of your stakeholders that uh, are involved when you're assessing cultures. That filters down. And then along with that, I would also go and look at what are the feedback mechanisms. It's great to have a policy and procedure, but if no one knows where they are, no one's bothered to read them. No one gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling. As an auditor or compliance professional, you're always looking for that warm, fuzzy feeling to know whether that risk is being addressed or mitigated or not. That's why you need some sort of way to check, is there a feedback mechanism? Is there a way that I know that people are looking at policies? They know how to find them. They know how to search for them. They, know, they even acknowledge that they've maybe read them or agreed to abide by them. Those are elements that you need to start considering when you're looking at culture, because that ultimately is a residual or a byproduct of your culture if you're able to answer those questions really well and have good evidence or good artifacts to back them up. Victor, you mentioned, or I guess we both chuckled when we started this podcast, that uh, when originally or initially faced with the task of auditing culture, many people go, how do you audit a soft, fuzzy, squishy thing like culture. But I just heard you name several specific strategies, tools, and techniques of the corporate world, which really either directly impact or even touch upon culture. And I'm going to pick up on the last one you gave, which was whether you call it a hotline, whether you call it speak up, whether you call it feedback, whatever it is, a mechanism that employees can communicate up the chain, have that information evaluated, and appropriate steps taken, whether it be a formal investigation, whether it be looking at a business process for potential improvement, or whether it be something else. And those are things, or I guess I should ask, when you sit down and explain to a CCO or someone who's trying to figure out how to assess culture, do they understand you're already doing cultures embedded in your code of conduct? 
Culture is embedded in your employment practices. No harassment, no retaliation, no discrimination. That's culture. Do the people understand when you start explaining to them, you're largely doing this. And so you've got policies and procedures and use the rigor to look at those issues. So a lot of times people will come to you and say, we've got this policy, we've got, we've got this whistleblowing hotline mechanism, whatever it is. And they'll come to you and say, so does that mean our culture's okay? And the answer is sadly, no, it's not a, a checklist exercise where you go through a list and you say, have you got this? Have you got that? Have you done this? Have you done that? It's actually uh, a case where the sum is more than the, or the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And it's also around what you have to consider is once you have all that, are you actually cultures also about, are you actually showing what you're talking about or demonstrating your culture? You may have a whistleblower to your point, a whistleblower mechanism. You've got the report. What was the end result of that? How was that communicated? Oftentimes, I'm not saying you have to give the whole details of this because it's confidential things that are maybe raised or disclosed, but it comes down to things like people forget, like if you're the unfortunate victim of a cybersecurity incident, how your culture also will come out in how you respond to that, how you communicate around that, how you resolve that. Those are elements where it's above and beyond just having certain elements in place and ticking the box and saying, yes, I have that. It's it's more did your actions and did your communications and your overall response uh, align with what you say your culture is or what you believe your culture is? The end result of a culture assessment, as with a risk assessment, is that you get uh, categories, a list, or topics of whether you call it risk, whether you call it, call it culture, and that it gives you a mechanism which you can either force rank the risks, meaning we take, we put a, a figure, an arbitrary figure around the biggest risk. Or if it's a culture, we take once again a forced ranking so that we have one through five, one through 10 that we can then perform or utilize as some sort of gap analysis. Does that type of procedure that I've described that I would use from a risk assessment also work for a culture assessment? Yes, I wouldn't see why not. And actually, I, I think it would be good if you look at the audience that you're dealing with, because they're probably, everyone's in the risk management business, whether they, they realize it or not. And one of the ways you uh, deal with risk is often, it's not a static thing and culture is no different. So ranking something or benchmarking it and having a basis to compare either to your previous assessment or your peers is actually very valuable and very useful in a good way of um, dealing with risk management because you always want to know today am I better than I was yesterday worse or the same um, how do I compare to my peers and things like that so if you're able to translate something like a culture uh, assessment into some sort of standardized way the way you would assess any other risk it helps because it gives people some commonality and some way to be able to respond or address any sort of risks that you're raising as a result of your culture assessment. Victor, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics we've touched on, what might be the best place for them to go? Shamelessly and selfishly, I would say 
please have a look at our, our website. It's uh, Diligent. So the website is very simply www.diligent.com. And there'll be a load of information available there that will give you some more context and also refer you onwards to other information. Well, Victor, I wanted to uh, thank you again, and I hope our listeners will join us next time where we take up the culture management strategy. Victor, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me, and so do I. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode in our special five-part podcast series on unlocking success, the crucial role of culture in compliance. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow where Jessica Cheshuga visits with me on a culture management strategy. We're going to link to resources from Diligent in the show notes, so please check them out. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope you'll join us again. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. This special five-part podcast series sponsored by Diligent has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.